As we get started today, it's going to be a, a little uh, different than it has been the past couple of weeks because I had to change computers. The audio is not going to be as good because I cannot hook my microphone up to this laptop. So please bear with me today during this lesson. Now, one thing I decided to do today is not continue our Living on Purpose series just for today. We'll resume that series, uh, Lord willing, next week. But today, I wanted to do a special lesson. Because recent decisions made at both the federal and state level indicate that the end of social distancing or, or the end of sheltering in place may be on the horizon. You may recall back on April 16th, President Trump announced that he would allow individual states to decide when they could begin reopening non-essential businesses and other elements of everyday life. And then last week on April 20th, Governor Kemp signed an executive order allowing some non-essential businesses to reopen as early as this past Friday. Now, now, don't take my presentation of this information as a political stance. I'm neither stating support for or opposition to these decisions. I'm simply acknowledging that they happened. And I'm doing so in order to make the point that regardless of whether or not we agree with the timetable, the end of this time of isolation appears to, at the very least, be on the horizon. With that being said... I have, to, I have to admit that the elders have not yet decided when and how we're going to return to assembling at the building. Uh, they will be discussing that this week, at least for the immediate future. So please, please keep them in your prayers as they have to make those decisions and, and analyze the information and, and so on. So please be with them as they make those decisions. This lesson is, is no indication of when we're going to return to normal assembly. You'll hear more from them later on that after they've made their decisions. But since there is at least light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to social distancing, I think we need to consider what spiritual preparations we need to make for our return from exile. So in today's lesson, we're going to examine the experience of the Jewish exiles who returned to Jerusalem following the Babylonian captivity, and we're going to observe some of the mistakes that they made in an effort to prevent ourselves from making the same mistakes when our exile ends. So the overarching question I want us to consider today is this. What can we learn from the Jewish exiles about returning from exile? And there's three key points I want to focus in on today. The first is this. When exile ends... We must not allow normalcy to become a distraction. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Nehemiah, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Here, Nehemiah, who is a, a Jewish exile living in Babylon, living in Persia, and he's serving as a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And here in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, he learned that the situation back in Jerusalem was bleak. If you look at verse uh, 3, I believe it is, he particularly learns that the wall of Jerusalem is still broken down and its gates are still destroyed. The repair work had yet been completed. 
Now, we need to understand a little bit of history here. If you go back to the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 1, we learn that the first exiles returned to Jerusalem a little more than 90 years before Nehemiah. They returned during the reign of King Cyrus. This would have been approximately 538 B.C. This group was led by a couple of guys named Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and their primary mission was to rebuild the temple. Now, they initially had success in that project, but eventually they faced opposition. And that opposition brought construction to a standstill. You can read in Ezra chapter 4 how local residents who opposed the reconstruction of the temple by those returning exiles, how those local residents discouraged and frustrated the construction efforts to the point that the work on the house of God stopped. Ezra chapter 4 verse 24. In other words, enough distraction was created that the objective of Zerubbabel and Jeshua's group was temporarily thwarted. It took the prophetic prodding of Haggai and Zechariah, as well as an investigation and decree by Cyrus himself, by Cyrus's successor, King Darius, to get the project back on track. See, construction on the temple was eventually completed in 516 BC. That's 22 years after it began. But they were derailed for a time. They were distracted for a time. Nearly 60 years after the temple was completed, during the reign of Darius's grandson Artaxerxes I, a scribe named Ezra led another group of exiles back to uh, Jerusalem. This would have been in about 458 B.C. And you can read about the authorization of that trip in Ezra chapter 7. Ezra's primary purpose was, uh, for lack of a better term, it was to reintroduce the returned exiles to the law of Moses. But what's pertinent to our study today is the fact that during his return to Jerusalem, construction actually began on the city of Jerusalem. The temple was completed, but the walls and the city still needed to be rebuilt. If you look at Ezra chapter 4 and verse 12, opponents to the construction during the time of Ezra's leadership during the time that Artaxerxes commissioned an effort, those opponents wrote to Artaxerxes and said, the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. You see, just like with the temple construction that took place under Zerubbabel and Jeshua, The construction of the city was met with opposition. The temple construction was met with opposition during Zerubbabel and Jeshua's time. It's met, the city's construction is met with opposition during Ezra's time. But this time, under Ezra, the project didn't get completed. This time, the exiles did not overcome the distractions and finish the job. And now here we are at the start of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah received the report that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates were destroyed by fire. The whole point of that little history lesson is for us to realize that when we get to Nehemiah chapter 1, 
Jerusalem remained in a state of disrepair because the people succumbed to their distractions. How does this apply to you and I? Think about it this way. Sheltering in place has taught us some valuable lessons. Sheltering in place has created renewed appreciation of some things that we took for granted. Sheltering in place has has sharpened our focus on some spiritual realities. Sheltering in place has had its benefits if we were looking for it. And the day is coming, I don't know when it will be, but the day is coming when this unexpected but unique experience will come to an end. And what we consider to be normal is going to be reinstated. And when things return to normal, it's going to be very easy for us to become distracted. Distracted with the busyness of life. Distracted by the opportunity for recreation again. Distracted by our our numerous responsibilities. And what tends to happen when you get distracted is that you forget everything you've learned. Think about David walking on his, the rooftop of his palace, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Up to that point in his career, he was a successful spiritual leader with a nearly unblemished record because he had maintained his focus on doing God's will in all things. But then he's walking around on his roof and he sees Bathsheba and he got so distracted by sexual temptation that he ignored all of the ways out that God had provided him. And in that moment, when he lost his focus, David forgot the lesson he learned when he was running from Saul and had the opportunity to take Saul's life. And that lesson was that a man after God's own heart refuses to rationalize actions that he knows are in opposition to God's will. When David was experiencing a time of peace there in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and casually walking on the roof of his palace, he lost his focus and got distracted. Think about Peter walking on the water. We we know that story from Matthew chapter 14. And he was successful as long as he was focused on Jesus, but as soon as he got distracted by the the wind and the waves, he started to sink. And in that moment, when he got distracted and lost his focus, he forgot what he learned from the event that just preceded the walking on water. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And and in that feeding of the 5,000, he learned that Jesus is in control, that Jesus was able to take these few pieces of bread and these few pieces of fish and turned them into this buffet. But he had forgotten that because he lost his focus. He got distracted. See, we cannot allow our return to what we used to call normal to keep us from holding on to and applying those lessons that we've learned during this time of abnormalcy. We can't stop appreciating those things that we took for granted and and realized we're so special during this time. 
We can't stop focusing on those things that really matter that this unique situation helped us to zero in on. When we come out of this exile, don't forget what you learned during exile. I'm reminded of something Moses said to the Israelites recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9. He said, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. In other words, Moses was instructing the Israelites to not lose focus. He instructed them to remember and pass on not just God's law, but also everything they had experienced. He knew there was value in what they had experienced during those years in the wilderness. And he didn't want them to forget what they learned from it. So when exile ends, we must not allow normalcy to become a distraction. Because there are things we gain and learn during this time that God can use in our lives. But that's not the only thing we can learn from the Jewish exiles about our return from exile. The second thing we can learn is that when exile ends, we must not allow personal preferences to fuel detraction. Now, detraction is different from distraction. A distraction is something that causes you to lose focus, something that causes you to forget what you're doing. A detraction is something that disparages, something that belittles, something that criticizes. And that's what we're talking about at this point. You see, once Nehemiah was able to get construction on the walls of Jerusalem restarted, he quickly began to face opposition. Everyone who went to Jerusalem to rebuild faced opposition. Look at what happened in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 1. It's there that we read this. It came about that when Sanballat heard that, that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. Now why was Sanballat mocking them? Because Sanballat didn't agree with what they were doing. You can journey back to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 10 where we're told that when Sanballat and others heard that Nehemiah had come to rebuild the city, when they had heard this, it displeased him greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. That means Sanballat was mocking, was ridiculing, was criticizing Nehemiah's activity simply because Sanballat didn't approve of it. So going back to Nehemiah chapter 4, look at what Sanballat did. In Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 2, he asks a series of rhetorical questions that are intentionally designed to undermine the people's confidence in Nehemiah's project. First, he criticized their ability when he rhetorically asked, what are these feeble Jews doing? He was inferring that they were too weak to rebuild the wall. Then he criticized their intelligence. He rhetorically asked... Will they restore it for themselves? He's inferring that they were foolish to think that they could rebuild this wall all by themselves. And then finally, he criticized their faith. He said, will they sacrifice? 
That's as if he's saying, do, you, do they think they'll be able to build the wall in prayers and sacrifices? Do, do, do they think that that's enough? The point is that Sanballat became a detractor. A detractor is a person who disparages someone or something. Sanballat was intentionally trying to disparage Nehemiah's work because it infringed on what he wanted, which was to maintain his power and his prestige in that area. You see, Sanballat... Sambalat ruled Samaria, and Samaria was the territory just north of Jerusalem. If Jerusalem rose back from the ashes, then it would be a potential challenger to his kingdom. So Sambalat became a detractor because his personal kingdom was threatened. Now, how does this apply to us? It applies to us because we have a tendency to become detractors when our individual kingdoms are infringed upon. See, to some degree, all of us think like Sanballat. We have our own individual kingdom. And as long as the decisions and activities of others do not disrupt our kingdom too much, then we're okay. But when somebody crosses that line of acceptable disruption, we have a tendency to respond negatively. At the outset of this lesson, I mentioned the fact that our governor signed an executive order that allows certain non-essential businesses to reopen. As soon as he did that, social media erupted with criticism by some, defense by others. Now, I'm not qualified to ascertain whether or not that was the right decision, so I'm neither supporting nor condemning it, but in observing the public's response to his decision, I started to wonder if decisions related to the churches assembly together are going to be met with the same reactions. Think about this with me for just a moment. How are Christians going to respond? How are Christians going to react when elders start announcing that they're opening the doors of the church building again? Are, they going to be, are the elders going to be met with criticism because they opened too soon? Or criticism because they waited too long? Is there going to be complaining and backbiting and gossip circulating behind the scenes because people disagree with the decision the elders came to? Are there going to be accusations that their decision was motivated by the collection plate and nothing else? You see, we have to be wary of the fact that when the elders make this decision... It's going to impact our individual kingdoms. It's going to affect our personal preferences and our opinions about the way things should be done. And here's what we need to remember. We need to remember that Scripture instructs us to appreciate and respect the elders. Paul instructed the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12-13, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and to esteem them, very highly in love because of their work. See, it's so very easy to complain and whine and think that their decisions are wrong, but we're not in their shoes. And we're not bearing their responsibility. And we're not subjecting ourselves to the burden of accountability that they will face. And so we need to be careful to not let our personal preferences and our opinions and the way we want things to be done to fuel detraction on our part. 
But the way we react to the elders is not the only thing that we should be concerned about. How are Christians going to react when a brother or sister personally chooses to maintain their distance? Or when a brother or sister chooses to reduce their distance? There there may be some that intentionally decide to worship from home a little longer than others. And there may be some that are just itching to get back in the building again because they can't wait to see everyone. There may be some that refrain from shaking hands and giving hugs and and fellowshipping after worship. And there may be some that that are going to be receptive to every form of physical contact. I guarantee that at the first opportunity, Ben Hogan's going to give me a bear hug when I get back. And I guarantee that Miss Edna is going to wrap her arms around me as soon as she can when I get back and probably plan a kiss on me too. Are we going to cast judgment on those that approach these circumstances differently than us? Are we going to talk about how they're being foolish or unreasonable behind their backs? See, not only do we need to be cognizant of how our personal preferences and our opinions can be detract from, from the elders, we need to consider how it can affect other members too. Let's not forget that scripture instructs us to be humble and selfless toward each other. Paul instructed the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, the first four verses. He instructed them to have the same mind and the same love for each other. And he indicated that this mutual mindset and this mutual affection, it will manifest itself by counting each other to be more significant than ourselves and by looking out For the interests of others. Here's my point. The end of our social exile will mark the end of a test. The test of maintaining our Christian walk in isolation. But the end of our social exile will also mark the beginning of a new test. The test of maintaining a Christian disposition in the way we react and respond to each other. I believe when we emerge from exile, it's going to show that as Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, the gates of hell were unable to prevail against his church. But just because Satan was unable to use this situation to cripple Christ's kingdom, it doesn't mean he won't try something else. And we need to be cognizant of the possibility that he could utilize our personal preferences, our opinions, our individual feelings about how we come back He could use those things to undermine the church in a way that physical distance couldn't. So when exile ends, we must not allow personal preferences to fuel detraction. But there is one more lesson we need to glean from those returning exiles to Jerusalem. And that is this. When exile ends, we must not allow our experience to cause permanent subtraction. Now that statement may not make a whole lot of sense at first. But essentially what I'm saying is that we must not let what's happened to us lead to long-term spiritual regression. See, if we return to the book of Nehemiah, he eventually did get those walls built. They eventually did overcome their distractions and their detractions. But after spending 12 years overseeing the work in Jerusalem, it didn't take that long to rebuild the walls, but that's how long Nehemiah was stationed there. After 12 years, he had to return to Babylon to give a report. 
according to Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 6. Now during his absence, the Jews regressed spiritually. In fact, when he comes back from, from Persia, when he re returns from that trip, he discovers that they had stopped their stewardship responsibilities. They weren't tithing anymore. And that's something that specifically was commanded in, in the Mosaic Law. You can go back to Leviticus chapter 27, I believe, and there's several instructions related to tithing there, but they had stopped doing that. And, and he also, you can see that in Nehemiah chapter 13 and verse 10. And then if you skip down to verse 15 and 16 of Nehemiah chapter 13, you'll see that he discovered that they were ignoring Sabbath observance. They're specifically instructed to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, but they weren't doing that. And then in Nehemiah chapter 13, if you, if you drop down to verses 23 through 24, you'll also see that he discovered that they were intermarrying with foreign people. That was expressly forbidden in Deuteronomy chapter 7 because God said you will not intermarry with other nations because they'll turn your children from following me to serve other gods. Well, they were ignoring that law as well. And so while Nehemiah was absent, the people allowed themselves to grow comfortable with spiritual compromise because there was no immediate accountability. It's very similar to that episode in Exodus chapter 32 when Moses is, is absent during a prolonged meeting with God. And during his absence, the Israelites decide to create this golden calf that they want to worship. And they rise up and they worship it and they begin to engage in sinful activity in addition to their, their idolatry. They became so comfortable with a spiritual life that had no immediate accountability in the form of Moses, that they decided to abandon what was right. So when Nehemiah, when Nehemiah returns from Persia here, he discovers a people who had accepted spiritual regression as an acceptable state. Now, we've been physically apart for six weeks already, and depending on what the elders decide in the coming days, it could be even longer. And Scripture makes it clear that one of the reasons we assemble together is to hold each other accountable. That's the underlying message of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The author of Hebrews is saying that we should not neglect to meet together because in meeting together, we stir one another up. We encourage one another. We challenge one another. We help one another. And like the Israelites during their separation from Moses, as well as the exiles during their separation from Nehemiah, we've gone through an experience that could easily lead to spiritual atrophy. And I believe our greatest temptation when exile ends is going to be to settle, to get comfortable with minimal spiritual activity. And the only way to combat spiritual atrophy is to get spiritual exercise. So do you know what Nehemiah did when he returned to Jerusalem and he found this regression? Well, if you look at Nehemiah chapter 13, look at verses 11 through 13. When he found stewardship lacking, he called out the people's sin. He said, why is the house of God forsaken? 
And then he got all of the people to start tithing again in verse 12. And then he appointed individuals to oversee the process moving forward in verse 13. And when he learned that the people were ignoring the Sabbath, he acknowledged their sin. He called it out. He said, what is this evil thing you are doing in profaning the Sabbath day in verse 17? And then he, then he said that they were guilty of regression by, by indicating that their sin was reminiscent of their ancestors who caused their exile in the first place. You can see that in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he set in place policies that would prevent them from continuing to profane the Sabbath, such as shutting the gates of the city on the Sabbath day. Then when he realized that some of the people had married foreigners, he, he called out their sin. He said, shall we do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign people? Down there in verse 27. And then if you back up to verse 25, you'll see that he made them take an oath before God in which they vowed not to give their children in marriage to foreigners nor take the children of foreigners into marriage with their children. Here's the point. When Nehemiah discovered where the people had regressed spiritually. He specifically started exercising that part of their faith. Because the only way to prevent permanent regression is to engage in consistent progression. What I mean is that spiritual growth necessitates spiritual exercise. And, and that's kind of what Paul was saying when he told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, to train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Paul indicated that our spirit needs training, just like our bodies. And spiritual training is more important than physical training because it impacts not only our present life, but also our eternal life. You see, when exile ends, we need to be ready to get back to work. We need to be ready to exercise our faith. We need to be ready to make progress. Some of us may have relaxed a little over the past few weeks. You may have gotten comfortable with not having a Sunday morning Bible class or not having a Sunday night worship service. You may have gotten comfortable with not having to take your teens to BYG events. You may have gotten comfortable with not having to serve in the worship service or prepare a class to teach. You may have gotten comfortable with not being able to engage in evangelistic or service efforts the way you normally would. You may have gotten comfortable with minimal spiritual activity. But when exile ends, so too must end our state of being comfortable. When exile ends, we must not, we must, we must like Nehemiah, start exercising those parts of our spiritual walk that may of necessity been a little dormant. When exile ends, we must be ready to start exercising spiritually again because a failure to exercise our faith will inevitably result in spiritual atrophy that's kind of the point being made by james when he said faith without works is dead so when exile ends we must not allow our experience to cause permanent subtraction when exile ends it's going to be time to start adding again. Now you may be wondering, why did I choose to preach this sermon this morning? Why do we need to hear this? 
I think it's because the only way to prevent distraction, detraction, and subtraction is by resolution. I want you to think about Daniel for just a moment. Here's a young man who went into exile. And yet set a great example of what it means to maintain your faith in the midst of difficult circumstances. What made Daniel succeed in exile was a decision he made at the outset. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8, we're told that Daniel resolved not to defile himself. In other words, Daniel made a deliberate decision to not allow his current circumstance to dictate his character or his future reward. And so I think it's appropriate now, while we have the opportunity to think about what life is going to be like when our exile ends, that we need to resolve not to return and be distracted by what we've distracted from what we've learned not to return and become a detractor among the body of Christ and to return and not let anything that has regressed continue hopefully regression hasn't been a part of your experience but no matter what it's time when this exile ends for us to get back to the work of the kingdom of God in ways that we weren't able to do during this exile. See, the whole point today is for us to start thinking about how we're going to conduct ourselves, how we're going to resolve to conduct ourselves when all this is over so that the aftermath doesn't cause any damage to the kingdom of God. We've been blessed during our time of exile. And we've seen how the church, the kingdom of Christ, cannot be prevailed upon by anything. So let's not let anything in the future prevail upon it either. I hope you found some benefit to this study today and it's challenged you to think of yourself to some degree. Hopefully it's made you think about the attitude you're going to possess as you return from exile. Hopefully it's made you think about how you're going to conduct yourself when you return from exile. But right now, today, if you look at yourself from a spiritual perspective and realize you have regressed, spiritually speaking, and you realize you don't really have the right attitude towards people right now, or you realize that you haven't opened up your life to God to glean spiritual lessons from our current experience. And something needs to change. Maybe today you're looking at yourself and you realize you're not ready for the future. No matter if we're talking about returning from exile or going into eternity. Maybe you need to make a decision. During this time of exile, we have been able to assist four people in being baptized, and you might be the next one. Maybe you look at your life and you realize that you're still lost in your sins, and you need to receive salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ by 
by confessing your faith in him, repenting of your sins, and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If you can reach out to any member of our eldership or, or any member of our, our ministry staff, please do so, and we will make arrangements to accommodate that. If you're struggling right now, and you need our help, you need the help of your, your brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking, maybe even physically speaking, let one of us know. We're all in this together. We are of the same mind and of the same heart. Now's the time to start making decisions about when we return. But more importantly, now is the time to make decisions that will impact you for all eternity.